0: Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to Footyology. This is the, uh, I guess you'd call it the finals by edition of our audio podcast. Of course, no finals this week and we will touch on that uh, rather controversial subject still for some of us. Um, How are you finding?
1: I'm well, looking forward to filling the void. Yes, well it is a
0: sizable void when you... Uh, have 23 rounds of football and then uh, right at the most important time of the year everyone uh, sort of breaks for a week and you know I I do understand the rationale in some ways but I I still think it's a a fairly contentious issue so we'll touch on that quickly but I thought we'd start uh, given the All-Australian team was chosen last night in a glittering Ceremony attended by um, Fox footy people and clubs and basically no one else. I, I don't know how big the invite list is, but I know we're not on it anymore. Um, I'll read out the team quickly, uh, just for those that may not have seen it. From the back line, Tom Stewart, Geelong, Alex Rance, Richmond, Rory Laird, Adelaide, Halfbacks, Shannon Hearn, West Coast, uh, Jeremy McGovern, West Coast, and Lockie Whitfield, GWS. Centre line, Andrew Gaff, West Coast, Dustin Martin, Richmond, Steel Side Bottom, Collingwood. Half forwards, Paddy Dangerfield, Geelong, Lance Franklin, Sydney, Robbie Gray, Port Adelaide. Full forward line, Luke Bruce, Hawthorne, Jack Rewalt, Richmond, Jack Gunston, Hawthorne. The Rucks, Max Gorn, Melbourne, Patrick Cripps, Carlton, Tom Mitchell, Hawthorne. Interchange, Brody Grundy, Collingwood. Clayton Oliver, or Clary, as you're apparently supposed to call him now, Melbourne, Sean Higgins, North Melbourne, and Shane Edwards. Richmond, always contentious selections here and there. There's always a list of players who may have been a bit stiff. Um, I'll kick us off. Uh, My, I don't know, I'm getting sort of less, I used to get quite wound up about who was picked and who wasn't. I don't know if I'm just wound up about it anymore. In fact, I've got a Funny theory that it's the whole Australian thing doesn't seem to create the the waves that it did. I'm wondering if that's because it's been shifted back into this sort of vacant week, and maybe it's just finding its feet there or something. Doesn't seem to have been that much reaction to this year's. My biggest bugbear, and it's not huge. Like I, I sort of yes, it's it's good in one way, but when they announce the squad of players to be picked they make a big deal and this is the AFL of saying this is a team picked as if to play a match therefore I've found the choice on the captaincy the last two seasons bizarre Alex Rance last year and Buddy Franklin this year and both don't get me wrong both you know I can absolutely understand why they'd be a captain and I'm sure either would be great in that role however if you are making a big virtue of this being a realistic team pick to play a game, as if you're going to have a club captain who's part of, <clears throat> pardon me, part of that side already in Shannon Hearn, not the captain. It just it
1: doesn't make sense. And also, did Alex Rance captain the team badly last year to lose, <laughs> yes. the, to lose the captaincy this year? So what do you, do you agree with me on yeah, that? Yeah, I think or? if you've got a captain selected in the team, yeah, uh, out of not even out of respect just out of um, sort of um not what would it be out of out of order out of yeah well how, do you, how out, do you it's not deference it's it's have a look at the team if there are any captains in there decide yeah. which of them would be the captain if there's one he becomes captain well I think it was a case with Joel Selwood. Charles Sewell was in last year's team,
0: and similar thing. But like, it just occurred to me: How do you feel this morning if you were Shannon Hearn? Oh, maybe you don't give a stuff. But I mean, wouldn't a part of you sort of go, "Well, hang on, are you saying that I'm not a great captain because I'm yes. good enough to be in this side and yet I'm not captain?"
1: Yeah, it is strange, isn't it?
0: And and if you and if you're going to depart from the thing about a team realistically picked to play a game, uh, well then you pick the team differently, don't you? You don't necessarily, you know, you just put in sort of the 22 best players of a season regardless of position, which I think would be stupid. I like the fact that it's picked as if to play a game. Uh, although, you know, we haven't... Uh, there was one year, I think, a run-with type player got a Guernsey, but that, that doesn't happen often. But this... Sort of, um, what's the word? You know, sort of symbolic captaincy thing is completely at odds with the fundamental principle of a side, and that that is my biggest bugbear. So, what and did you, they
1: not name a vice captain this year? Uh they used to name a vice captain.
0: Yeah, I, I, right off the top of my head, I'm not sure, but if they did it, it eluded me. So, you've heard that side. Is there anyone you think is really lucky to be there or unlucky not to be there?
1: Look, first of all. You look, all the players that have been named, and even in the squad, have had good seasons. There's no denying that. And this becomes an opinion game. But I think that there are two players that I would not have had in that 22. Yeah. And I think that there are two that are clearly better suited to be in the side.
0: Okay, so far away.
1: Um, look, I understand that reputation and ability... Above and beyond form during the season does count for something, mm. but I think that Robbie Gray was had his highs and lows this season, and I don't believe that he had a consistent enough season to earn himself a spot in the team, yeah, and I think that there is a forward that clearly was more dangerous and had a better season than him, and that's Jordan degoey and I would absolutely have Jordan degoey in that team before Robbie Gray, and I don't think Robbie Gray should be in the twenty two
0: Yeah, well, I don't have the stats in front of me, unfortunately. So if I did, we could do a bit of a comparison. But um, what was your other one?
1: Uh, Look, I followed Shane Edwards quite closely this season. He's a good player. I think he was a decent contributor for the first half of the season. They made a bit of a change with where they play Shane Edwards, and they put him starting at the back of the square, sort of running rather than sitting on the half-forward flank. He had two or three outstanding games. And then he folded back into being a decent contributor without being outstanding. Yeah, okay. And I think the Devon Smith, in his first season in Essendon, was consistently outstanding. Leading tackler in the competition. High possession winner. Still dangerous around goals. And I think Devon Smith is extremely unlucky not to be in that 22 and had a better season. Clearly better season than Shane Edwards, full stop. Yeah, yeah, I agree with
0: that. Um, Edwards, uh, Edwards does a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily, um, I was going to say doesn't necessarily show up in the school board. I mean, goal assist for me is his big thing. It's amazing how many goals he is involved with. Pretty, I think he's number two in the AFL for goal assist behind Jake Melksham, but... Um, Devin Smith, and I obviously watched Essendon very closely. He was, it's actually really interesting. He, I had a, i scribbled down the leaderboard in the AFL Coaches Association Award, the Herald Sun Award and the Age Award. Um, in the AFL Coaches Association Award, Dyson Heppel was the leading Essendon player. He was 10th. And in the Herald Sun Award, Heppel was in the top, I think, 12 or 15. And in the uh, Age Awards, Zach Merritt was. But Smith wasn't anywhere. And I thought, gee, he he was early in the season when Essendon were crap. He was really flying the flag. But his tackling is almost his biggest asset as an on-baller as much as his possession rate. And I think in terms of possessions, he wasn't ranked in the top 20 or 30 on-ballers in the league. But his tackling is absolutely sensational. So then you sort of start asking yourself, uh, do do perhaps we look too much or do the selectors look too much at stats? And is Smith a victim of that because there's a catalogue of on-ballers who have all averaged more disposals per game than he has?
1: Well, if they do, then they're not looking at all the stats because he's the number one tackler in the competition. Yeah. And that's a key component of a well-rounded midfielder and certainly in a team... If it is a team pick to play, you've got all of these star players, then you want somebody um, stemming the flow the other way. You want somebody in that team who tackles and who provides a defensive edge for all of those fantastic midfielders that are already part of the team. So, yeah, I'd have Devon Smith in that team, no problems.
0: All right, now you mentioned DeGoey and Gray. I have just quickly dug up basic stats on the season. So degoey. For the season, averaged uh, 11 and a half kicks. I don't know why they don't just do disposals. Dugowie averaged 17 disposals. Um, and he kicked 36 goals. He had 65 inside 50s. Remember that? Yep. I know you've got a steel trap mind. Well, I scroll down to...
1: Robert Gray. Robbie
0: Gray. And Robbie Gray averaged... 20 disposals, 36 goals. Is that the same? Same, Exactly the same, yep. And he had 54 inside fifties. So it's line ball. I I did have a look last night at Gray compared to Gray last year, and his numbers actually – I know his goals were slightly down, but his disposal rate was up. And he has – I'm pretty sure he's spent more time midfield this season than last season. Yep. So it's probably a line ball selection. The one I know a lot of people were – tetchy about was Jack McRae and his possession rate has been fantastic this year.
1: Yeah look he's a huge possession winner um, I don't know I'm not that Does he do enough with them? Yeah, I'm so not so. I'm not necessarily sold on McRae. Had he made the team and he made the 22 I wouldn't have been up in arms. Yeah But I'm not sold that he's a better choice for example. Who are they comparing him to? Higgins maybe? Being in the team yeah. I mean, Tom Mitchell has to be in the side, surely. Yeah, well, McCrae averaged... Side um, bottom? I mean, side bottom, I think, has to be in the team.
0: I like side bottom on a wing, too. I think that's yep. a, a really good spot for him. Actually, there's one thing worth no- noting about this team. You look at the I reckon in recent years the wingmen have tended to be just extra midfielders. Correct. Where you look at Gaff, uh, more so Gaff than side bottom, but you're, you look, it looks like a specialist wingman. Well, yeah. having said that, Gaff wins more inside ball than he used to. So, McCrae... and I'm pleased,
1: I'm pleased that Gaff wasn't um, uh, held to account for oh, his nah. indiscretion. No, nah, he can't do that. Made the team fair and square. That's good. Um, so, McRae
0: averaged 32 disposals. Yep. Um, well there's no question he gets the ball plenty. Yeah, so who was who was Oh Higgins was the one yep. you were saying who was in. So thirty two disposals for McRae. Sorry, I just got it for North Melbourne.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm saying I'm happy that Higgins is in the team. He's a he's a, a, a an, Wonderful user of the ball. Limits. 27 for Higgins. Okay, so people say he gets the ball five times less, but I think, I think he's I, more damaging. He
0: is more damaging. That was the word I was going to use. He's just got that extra little bit of polish about him. Um, what else? Uh, often the back line seems to have contentious um, components, but I didn't hear too many whinges about the back line. Great effort from uh, Tom Stewart. Yeah,
1: I, I think he's developed into a really, you know, a... a an important component of DeLong's back home, a bit of a general there. Great choice as a back pocket. You know,
0: I've been desperately... Uh, I know you, you don't frequent Twitter. When you're on Twitter, um, you know, people will tweet things at you and you make a note to file them away for future use. And there was one tweet, uh, so Tom Stewart's first pre-season two years ago, I think after the second nab challenge game they played and I, I tweeted something about you I, I really like the look of Stewart and someone came at me and said oh, I thought he looked like a scrubber uh, so I, I'm desperately I couldn't go back far enough through the archives but I want to find that tweet and say to this guy oh, how do you think now because no, he, he's been terrific uh, great story um, Rory led in the back pocket no Alex problem, Rance tends to pick himself. Jeremy McGovern's had a great season.
1: Absolute lock, Lockie Whitfield. He was. Been terrific, hasn't he? had it? a fantastic season. He's. Well, credit
0: to the, uh, uh, I was about to say Jeremy Cameron. Credit to Leon Cameron and the coaching staff for finding that role for him. He's yep. been an absolute winner.
1: Yeah, he's, he's a lock in that position and pardon the pun.
0: The other, um, perhaps, uh, bit of a difference to most recent years is that we haven't got a uh, we haven't got a third key forward playing in a forward pocket Jack Gunston has sort of taken that role yep, and which is good it's probably a reflection of a more contemporary forward setup isn't it that you haven't got three sort of key position players there's two keys and um, a couple of medium-sized forwards which uh, Gunston is He's bigger than medium size, isn't he? But he doesn't play as a key forward.
1: Yeah, you know, in a practical sense, the team doesn't work because there's no way you could pick Max Gorn and Brodie Grundy in the same twenty-two. Well, there have been years when they've and satisfied got... their needs because both of them ruck all day. Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting one
0: because again, I should have brought my media guide with me. There, there have been years when they've only gone with the one, absolutely Ruckman, and and there's been a nominal bloke who does a bit of pinch hitting. Who famously
1: so, there was a year they went with two Ruckman from the same team. Who's that? Nettenui and Cox.
0: Oh yeah, right. Okay. Um, so you think if if that team was playing, you reckon they'd be
1: top heavy? Well, they you. You could not play Grundy and Gorn in the same team because both of them ruck all day. And they're not really, they're not really going to sit in the forward line, are they? So mm. it doesn't work.
0: Yeah, okay. So overall, what do you give that team out of 10? Nine. Yeah, I'd, I'd go nine. Yeah, I, I haven't got too many quibbles with it at all, really. I mean,
1: you've sort of shown that Grey and DeGoey statistically are interchangeable. Yeah. I definitely would go DeGoey ahead of Grey. All right. Um, I, I, yeah, go on. Yeah, and I'm, you know, pretty steadfast on Devon Smith being very unlucky.
0: I want to touch on two things quickly. Uh, one, the pre-finals bye. So uh, I guess I've got used to it now. It's been two years we've had it. I still think it was a massive overreaction to bring that into a couple of teams resting half sides for one game of the season. Yep. Basically, my position on it—we uh, did talk about it on Footyology TV. Uh, it's, we're one all, I reckon. I reckon plenty of evidence to suggest that it helped the Western Bulldogs win their flag in 2016. Sure. Last year, not so. The top four. Um, going into the finals was the same top four that played off in the preliminary finals. Do you think that if we have... um, Now, I guess the key is, is there a side in the bottom half of the eight that has a lot of injuries to deal with and will really benefit from this buy? And off the top of my head, Melbourne, Geelong, GWS... Yeah, well, GWS and Sydney are pretty banged up.
1: Maybe GWS, but... North,
0: North Sydney have got... A sore buddy and Parker yeah, missed possibly. last week. Canterbury yeah, yeah. saw.
1: Yeah, well, they play each other, so that's a bit of a
0: okay, well, Okay, no, fair enough. Well, let's say Sydney were able to get all those guys back and yeah. they suddenly bounce back and won. Would yeah. you think that that was enough evidence to say we need, well, we should scrap it because it doesn't, there's not now not enough advantage for the top four?
1: I just think we, I just believe on the balance of what we've seen over two years, I tend to lean your way and say that it t- diminishes the advantage well-earned by teams who finish in the top four. So yeah. I don't think there's a place for it. Yeah, and I uh, also don't think there's a place for it in the psyche of football supporters who who are just, you know, we're in a season, we don't expect the breaks put on the a momentum football argument. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I,
0: I'm big on, I want to see the sides that have been the best sides of the season prosper. And uh, I just think that, you know, if you're, you're going for six months, you earn that advantage over the rest of the competition and this dissipates. And particularly when you've got a final eight, you've got nearly half the competition playing in finals.
1: Yep. doesn't make sense to me. I know we've got to move on, Rowan. picked just quickly, a couple of delistings caught my eye during the week, um, particularly at St Kilda, the club that I support. Nathan Freeman has been delisted. And I think that is hard yards indeed because... Obviously, his story is well told through Collingwood and then St Kilda. A number of years spent fighting a hamstring injury, finally makes it into the senior team. Played two games that I thought were quite good, and he had so a he bit played of against, polish.
0: Played against the Bulldogs and Essendon, and he rounds yeah, twenty twenty one. Right. Then he got dropped.
1: Yeah, and he showed a bit of polish in those games. Didn't get a lot of the ball, and I'm sure that there's room for improvement. But you know what? I actually thought that he reads the game really well and that there's something to go on with. He got dropped, which was a a bit of an indication as to what Alan Richardson might have thought of him. And next thing you know, he's delisted. And to be honest, I'm peeved.
0: So do you think in hindsight, it sort of looks like they had his cards marked yep. and he came in for that sort of token? token couple That's of what games. it looks like now, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, and I'm, I think it's absolutely wrong. I think he showed a level of... Reading the game and a bit of polish. You know, against Essendon, there were a couple of great interceptions early in the game. He kicked a goal that was a good piece of play. I think he might have got a, uh, the ball in the middle of the ground and then a 50-metre penalty, but mm. he kicked it well. But I, I just thought that there was enough there, and given that St Kilda are crying out for a class edge to their football, that he provided a bit of that. And I, I'm disappointed that he's delisted.
0: All right, well, actually, you just... I don't know if I'm stealing your thunder here, but the the one that caught my eye, and I didn't expect the delistings to come as quickly as they have, to be honest. But um, Billy Hartung, so North picked him up. They needed pace. Now he got injured about midway through the season, but I thought until he got injured, he was really giving them something. So I I, I did ask someone at North. I said, "Geez, a bit stiff," and they said, "Yeah, he is." But it it does make me think and conspiracy theory, but doesn't it make you think they're clearing the decks for someone potentially by the name of Pollock? Jay Pollock. Or I, now, I don't know this, but Gaff you've you know, yeah. but that's what it feels like, doesn't yeah, it?
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, he's
0: stiff-heart-tongue, I reckon.
1: He's, he, he gives you what he promises and unfortunately has not been able to overcome his deficiency which is he's kicking and he's kicking is not Penetrating. You know, he's sort of accused of somebody who kicks floaters. Mm. Uh, but he's quick. When he gets the ball, he's hard to pin. Mm. And as you said, a team that is expecting to get some quality outside run from a Pollock or maybe a Gaff might find Hartung a surplus to needs.
0: Yeah. Rightio, it's time to move on. On Footiology Media Watch. Rightio, the home and away round's done and dusted, uh, finals coming up so uh, still a bit to go but thought maybe it was an appropriate time this week finding to give out a few highs and lows of uh, media coverage of AFL football so far this season. You got a few on the agenda?
1: Well it is awards week isn't it? It's <laughs> it's fill-in week with no football so we'll come to the party with some highs and lows and I want to start with a high.
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: And in the highly talked about and sort of tweeted about world of special comments men and women that we now have in the game, I've got a couple of highs. I've got uh, somebody who I think has really progressed through the ranks to be right up there as one of the best special comments men. And a, an acknowledgement that one of our special comments women is well and truly deserved of that position and, in fact, a real talent. So my highs go to Matthew Richardson, mm. who I think has developed into an uh, an excellent addition to any call team of special comments. Yep. What is his style? What makes him good? I think he gives great insight into the emotional and psychological standpoint of an AFL footballer, yeah. of how an individual feels when, you know, pressed into action, when given the responsibility of kicking an important goal, when, you know, putting himself in the position of, of somebody to interpret the mind of a footballer I think he's very good at that and I also think like all good footballers or champions as he was he reads the game very well and sees it well so a big thumbs up to Richo.
0: It's really funny you say that because I was um, I was going to talk this week before we decided to go with some highs and lows and I tweeted this last Saturday night the Sydney Hawthorne game I really enjoyed the Channel 7 commentary team and if I'm saying that with a Tone of faint surprise in my voice. There are we've been critical on plenty of occasions, but Saturday Night's team was um, James Brayshaw, Luke Darcy calling at uh, Richo doing special comments, and Jude Bolton on the boundary, and I thought it was a really good combination. And there's definitely far less vaudeville and sort of theatrics and histrionics in the Saturday Night call, which I I, I always think is good. But I just liked the rapport between those guys. I think what I like about both Richo and that special comments role and Jude doing the boundary is there's an understatedness about them. Like they make the right comments, but there's not this sort of – you don't feel with them that they're exerting the presence of former AFL champion Matthew Richardson. They just come in and it, it, that, to me, makes it easier as a viewer who hasn't played at the highest level – to relate uh, to their comments, you know, without feeling like they're talking down to us. And I agree with you on Richo. I, I think so. Friday nights I will have him on the boundary and you, you don't get a full enough picture of what he can add to the broadcast like that. But in that special comments role, I agree with you. I think he makes some really pertinent observations. And there, I th- uh, may, maybe we're falling into a trap of expecting comments blokes to be very technical all the time. I, I prefer the guys that really necessarily aren't. They they sort of can speak in layman's terms, and I think Richard does that.
1: And also, he doesn't fall into the trap, and maybe this is something that you develop after a couple of years of doing special comments and you're more comfortable in the position, but he doesn't fall in the trap of what some special comments uh, men do, which is, trying to, almost living up to their reputation as footballers and becoming a caricature of themselves. And Mm. unfortunately, here is a bit of a thumbs down for Jonathan Brown because Jonathan Brown was a brilliant footballer, but when he gets that special microphone in hand, I think he feels he needs to live up to the reputation of being one of the game's hard men. And he always defers to any... Any on-field incident where there's a bit of biffo, mm. you know, he he tends to defer to. Yeah, let that go, you know, nothing too serious there, yeah. and is constantly giving us special comments imbued with the need to be tougher, harder, you know, yeah, bring yeah. back
0: the biff. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's fair call,
1: cool. but maybe that will dissipate as he becomes more comfortable in the role. And I just want to mention Daisy Pearce because. Oh, yeah. We've had a lot of female voices added to commentary in various ways, to, f- to the coverage in various ways over the last couple of years. Uh, Fox football coverage has brought a lot of female voices and there have been some suggestions of tokenism. I'm not buying into that, but I will sort wheat from chaff and say that Daisy Pierce. When providing special comments on radio, in fact, whenever there's a microphone in front of her, is illuminating, you know, Mm. she understands the game, she's played it at a very, at the highest level that the female can, but she really understands football, and I listen to her as I would any male special comments person, uh, regardless of gender as a valuable contributor to a commentary team. So, thumbs up for Daisy Pearce.
0: Yeah, no, good call. I agree. Um, In, in fact, I think um, I, I, she's not as prominent. She's, her TV stuff's been more limited, and she's been mainly radio, and yes. I've done a bit of work with her on Marngrook. But Abby Holmes is another one. I, I rate very highly for her insights into the game. And when it's... Are they given enough opportunity to express them? It's very hard and I've done enough boundary riding. it's hard to get enough sort of airtime to be able to present yourself in the way you'd like to. You know, often a, you're sort of slave to what's happening out in the ground. If there's a spate of injuries or whatever, you end up just being a, a purveyor of...
1: Medical officer.
0: Uh, correct, correct. Like Dieter, uh, Peter, Dr. Doctor Peter Larkins. Geez, I struggled with that one, didn't I? Um, all right, I've got a high as well. And... I've got to say, um, as a, a mainstream media person, I was quite worried about the rise of the AFL Club media department and them sort of treading on our turf and, um, you know, perhaps making things harder for mainstream media organisations. I'm not sure that that's happened. I think access has become harder, but not necessarily. Because club media departments are getting bigger That's happened for other reasons And I think the work that AFL club media departments do Gets better and better And there's two examples I want to bring up here (laughs) One of them, um, it's going to smack of self-interest But I've been doing some work for Essendon this year I've been doing a weekly preview And I've been doing interviews with Essendon club legends Who are presented to the crowd before every home game And um, so as part of that, I've I've been doing a video interview with those guys. And when we started the year, you know, the idea was they were going to be quite short interviews. But right from the start, um, they ended up... The interviews and the material you had to work with were these former greats. And we spoke to the likes of Ken Fraser and uh, Barry Davis and John Burt and more recent players too. We got, you know, Mark and Jason Johnson together. We spoke to Chris Heffernan. You know, the stuff they've had to offer has been so good.
1: You won't get much brevity with Barry Davis. No, no,
0: he can talk and he's quite happy to admit that Barry could talk for Australia. Fortunately, so could I. Uh, That was a particularly long interview. (laughs) But right from the start, um, the interview, we found the interviews were going longer. They were going like half an hour and I thought, oh, gee, what a, you know, we're going to have to chop some decent stuff. And they just said, no, no, we're going to go with this. So, most of those video interviews went for at least sort of 20 minutes and there was a longer audio version which you could download. And it wasn't just – it was how they looked as well, really nicely shot um, and, um, yeah, great. The, the sort of video people clubs are using now, it's, they're doing some terrific work. So that was sort of one example. And the other example was the other night, that um, documentary Keeping North-South. Which Heath O'Loughlin and a few guys from North worked on most of the year about the aborted, you know, about the AFL trying to railroad them up to the Gold Coast. It's screened on uh, Fox Footy on Tuesday night. It is available on the North Melbourne website if you are interested in seeing it. But it's a ripper. It went for an hour. Um, They interviewed a huge range of people that were involved with it. Um, You know, the key players, James Brayshaw, Mark Brayshaw, Peter Deroche. Andrew Demetrio, Gil McLaughlin. Um, they spoke to a few media people. I, I was one of them. Um, and Caroline Wilson, Damien Barrett. But a lot of work went into it, and it was really well produced, and they just let the interviews tell the story. There was plenty of good news footage that was cut with the interviews. Um, it was really, really well done. And we're finding both lamented the fact that major media outlets seem, and and even at times the AFL website, they seem to not pay enough regard to history and culture and tradition of football. I think there's some real hope there in the actual club media departments, because I think they're getting more sophisticated, better resourced, and perhaps it's those agents that are going to be able to bring us the stuff we want to see, rather than the commercial media outlets.
1: Yeah, look, I I couldn't emphasize enough how important respecting the history of the game is to building future loyalty to the game. <clears throat> I think we undersell young football fans and how important it is to in to illuminate the not just immediate past but the distant past as well. It's engaging and it connects people to their club. And if it forced to club media to present those stories through documentaries, through interviews, then you are 100% correct. More power to those clubs that are doing it. And hopefully all clubs realise that we are nothing without our, our history. Where we are today is very much a product of what has come before. All right.
0: Well, with the good comes the bad. Let's uh, have, uh, let's each nominate a low.
1: I think we've talked about it during the year, but the overstuffed commentary box is, (laughs) has reached heights, almost ridiculous heights this season on a Friday night, particularly. Too many voices, too many, almost too many. sort of agendas being run within the commentary box. Too many egos, too, too much fight for oxygen, too much fight for microphone makes for a very messy commentary. And marginalises some people to the point of a, a comedy act. Mm. You know, when you've got two commentators commentating the game that have forgotten that their role is to call the game, not to s- provide special comments, not to provide a running... Uh, Comedy show, that already becomes difficult to accommodate. So I've got to say that at times this year, um, sort of uh, Bruce McAvaney has deferred from commentary to running an agenda, a theme throughout the program. Take the final game of the season; mm. he took it upon himself in calling the Friday night game. To not only provide commentary, but to provide a season review for every player that touched the ball—that's forty-four season reviews.
0: I reckon that's happening a bit more. I've got to say, um, I think Eddie is guilty of that at times. That Eddie will call a play and then offer a, a sort of a editorial comment, and uh, then pursue a theme. Uh, yeah, you, you don't want you don't want the guy in that particular role to exceed their brief. Too. So,
1: so then you've got. You know, Wayne Carey and and Ling providing special comments. You know, they begin to fight for oxygen. You might have Rick who we've already described as an ex- excellent special comments man, striding the boundary with little purpose. Do we then throw in somebody else to help us get on and off the ground with these now um, invasive on-field interviews? And we had a situation in the last round where a couple of players had announced their retirements. Mm. And oh, yeah. rather than being allowed to be chaired off by their teammates and really with fans and teammates embrace the moment of their final, their final moments on a league ground, they are being hijacked by the commentary team and by the broadcaster. So in the case of Brendan Goddard, is he cheered off the ground with his teammates? No, he's left on the ground on his own for five minutes or almost you know, five to ten minutes doing an interview with, was it Gil McLaughlin? No, Haim, 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 it wasn't McLaughlin. Gil, Gil Hamish McLaughlin. Well, I'm glad you brought that was up. Was Hamish trying to make him cry?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I was filthy on that. It was a classic uh, case of the network thinking they were bigger than the game. Um, and that the TV audience was more important than the sense of occasion for the people that actually turned out for the game. I thought that was shocking. I mean, and if they clearly tried to make a big deal of it, A, by having Hamish out there, he doesn't usually do that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it went on for way too long. And, and there was a clear agenda there. We're going to get this guy so emotionally he cries and then we'll be able to play the footage 500 times over. It's just, it's arrogant and boorish. And yeah, I thought it really hit the wrong note. And I think people, I know the SA, the uh, sorry, the sorry AFL Nation commentary team alluded to it as well. So people noticed it, you know, like show a bit of respect, you know, let the guy um, be paid his dues by the crowd and by his teammates. You know, yeah, it's not about you. Yeah, I know, it was a good call. Um, all right, I, I'm going to finish off with a, a low as well. For me, it's a more general theme, this, but I'd call it the jockocracy. And, um, you know, I I think a few of us have feared this coming for years, perhaps even decades. But as more and more former players get into the football media, I, I don't know how you avoid it. But there are now that many forums where you don't have a journalistic presence. It's basically a posse of former players and sometimes I think despite their um, their uh, their intentions, they sort of fall into this, you know, click of f- former players thing, sort of sitting around trying to one-up each other and impress each other. And it was, you know, oh, well, I remember doing when you did blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, well, Brownie, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think that sort of alienates the viewer. The viewer sort of feels like they're, you know, like a a groupie on the outside of this celebrity conversation and mm-hmm. um I, I tell you when I notice it most and it's not even uh it's not even really about these guys' sort of egos or whatever, but on On the Couch, you know, you got Jared Healy, Jonathan Brown, Paul Ruse and Gary Lyon. And it, it's really struck me with the ads for On the Couch, there's sort of these grabs from each of them and they're all really negative, you know, it's sort of like, you know, uh that's disgraceful effort from, and then the next bloke goes, uh, you know, if you can't, if, if you're not training that stuff, how can you, you know, it's all totally negative and it's sort of like trying to subconsciously outdo the previous bloke with what he said. And I really hate that, I mean, the idea of having a former star in that role is to shed the insight that they have gleaned from being on the inside and to share that with people that haven't had that luxury. And I think when you have too many of them, it actually does the opposite. It sounds like they're trying to impress each other and that we're an unwanted outsider to that conversation.
1: So just in a global sense, the saturation we now have in AFL media of past players, and it seems as though, say, Fox Football's philosophy is uh, a smattering of commentators, then all the rest of the work to be done by ex-players, with some female voices, mm. special comments, you know, programs that opine on football, etc. And to be honest, just think about this for a moment, that the world of journalism, to be a really strong football journalist, is a skill set that is developed through working in the media, through starting off maybe in a newspaper, starting at a radio station, working yourself up and the best of the best non-players who thrive in the environment of football in the the football journalistic environment that's a particular skill set that has been worked on for a number of years being a, a champion footballer does not build up any of those skills so to suggest that ex-footballers can immediately step into the roles that previously have been filled by highly competent journalists, well, just the common sense says no. I mean, it would be a a, a very talented individual, quite the coincidence, that somebody is a brilliant footballer and a brilliant journalist.
0: Yeah, and, and that happens occasionally. But, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And it, but to it,
1: immediately frog... For, for a footballer to hang up his boots, and the next thing he does is frog leap journalists with decades of experience simply doesn't... It, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense, and it's wrong. Well, it makes you
0: wonder whether the people making those decisions are actually listening to the content, or it's just the, those are choices made at a, a very superficial level. Well, which it is. is. It,
1: it's, it's saying that a viewer will recognise an ex-footballer and immediately tune into him, listen to him, watch him or read him ahead of a journalist because they have become familiar with that person through their playing career.
0: Yeah, and I think perhaps the bottom line for all this stuff is that, and we've both opined on this, the audience is a lot smarter than I think the people making those decisions give them credit for. Check the ratings, people. All right, time to move on. On
1: Footyology,
0: previews with punch. Oh, no, it's not. This week, it's reviews with punch because uh, in the buy rounds, what better time to go through the seasons of those clubs no longer with us in playing terms. Uh, Ten teams missing the eight for this year. Let's run through them finally. We'll try and be as punchy as possible, but ten to go through. Uh, we'll work our way up from the bottom, and unfortunately, Blues fans, that means we start with you. Uh, worst season statistically in the club's history, their fifth wooden spoon in 17 seasons. Behind the eight ball very early, losing Sam Doherty pre-season, their playmaker. Only got half seasons out of Matt Cruiser and Mark Murphy. Um, pluses, uh Patrick Cripps, phenomenal, as evidenced by his All-Australian selection, Charlie Curno continues to develop. Um, Zach Fisher, I thought, showed a bit uh, in the last few weeks. Cameron Paulson showed a bit. Harry Mackay in the last few weeks showed a bit. I'm really worried, though, about the, the sort of way they play football. They started the preseason looking like they wanted to attack more, um, and they seemed to sort of go away from that. And in the end, they scored less than they had last year, and they conceded a heap more. They had an average losing margin of 49 points, that three 100-point losses and there were too many games where you knew they were done within 10 minutes of the game starting. So um, there, there is some young talent there, but uh, anyone would have to say they've gone backwards. They've gone in the three years under Brennan Bolton from seven wins to six wins to two wins.
1: Yeah, look, terrible season for Carlton and I guess there's been some optimism and for the first half of the season people were sort of saying, Look, they're showing a bit here, in as much as there's a couple of players that you can certainly build a future around, and Patrick Cripps is an absolute gun, and so is Charlie Curnow, and they've during the season committed to extra uh, time at the club, so that is a positive for Carlton. The problem is that you're not going to get you're not going to get much more out of Patrick Cripps. The concerns are Jacob Wietering. Top draft pick who has shown little. Um, Levi Casbold's demise means that they don't have a big body up forward. That Harry Mackay shows something, but I guess it exposes him. And look, Carlton, to me, are in a position where this Brendan Bolton rebuild has not taken hold. And I think the coach's position is in some question a disastrous year.
0: Okay, 17th on the ladder, Gold Coast, four wins, uh, three of which came in their first five games. Easy to forget that because they lost 16 of the last 17, and the one win in that entire period was that the upset of the year by a long way when they beat Sydney um, at the SCG. A year complicated by that ridiculous schedule. They couldn't use their own home grandfather for season, so in that period they played in Cairns, Melbourne, Perth, Adelaide, Ballarat and Shanghai, a lot of Wayland brothers.
1: But that was at the start of the year when their form was better.
0: Yeah. I think it took a toll, though. Um, she said, they're not going well, are they? Tom Lynch has gone. Still questions about Stephen May. Where You know, where are they going to
1: go? I mean, they're in huge trouble. This was the first year for a new coach and there were sort of hopes, especially early in the year, that there was a harder edge to the side. But they seem to very quickly fold back into the easy beats that had cost Rodney Eade his job. And quite frankly, this is a side that, you know, people say, what do they stand for? It's an easy mother statement, isn't it? But quite honestly, they're a side that is finding it very difficult to attract players. The only player that they've been able to attract is Lockie Weller who's you know, a good kid, but they're not a destination club. They're an exit club, and the future looks really grim for Gold Coast. I just wonder how long this experiment goes for, because at the moment it's a failed one.
0: All right, uh, this won't be fun for you. St Kilda, 16th, four wins and a draw, down from 11 wins last year. I reckon their game style's a mess, Fanny. They they use the boundary o- uh, overly. They are ponderous in their ball movement. They don't have the skills to play a possession-based game and turn it over a lot. They're weak defensively and in attack, incredibly inefficient, inaccurate. Um, And I think the lack of class, particularly in that midfield group, has been really exposed this year. So um, they've got a lot of work to do. And uh, Gee, what, five years for Richo, isn't it? You're starting to wonder... Has it all been worth it? Because you know, if, if this, if what we saw this year is the sum total of five years. It hasn't amounted to a whole heap.
1: No, look, you made some good observations there. Very slow. Um, when they try and retain the ball, they're doing, and it, it really is passe football. Is switching the ball from side to side. And all that's allowing the opposition to do is get behind the ball and defend against St Kilda. So entries into the forward line, the numbers might be okay, but they're not doing it with enough speed to expose the back line. Their, their ball movement is at times very conservative, very slow. I think the midfield competed well this season. Jack Steele had a very good year. Jack Stevens, another good season. So they competed honestly, in the midfield, which meant meant that for parts of the game, St Kilda remained quite competitive. But slow movement into the forward line, then terrible goal kicking, in the end had its... The sum total of that effect was it, it affects the morale of the team. So, uh, Alan Richardson, the coaching... The, the game style has to change. You know, highly competitive at the contested ball is not good enough because when St Kilda get it, they're one of the worst teams in the comp. All right, uh, Brisbane,
0: 15th. Five wins, um, only the same as last year. Now, you pointed this out in Footyology TV last year. You were, Last week, yep. Did uh, I say last year? Last week. Um, yeah, you were quite critical. I'm cutting him a bit of slack because they have been very, very competitive. Average losing margin of only 25.7 points, which is easily the best of the bottom eight sides, and that's the sort of margin you see more with the top teams. They lost five games by seven points or less, and I think the development of the young guys continues apace. Cam Rayner, really great debut season from him. Hugh McLuggage continued to improve. I think Alex Witherton continued to improve, um, we saw improvement from a couple of guys who'd been there a while. One, Harris Andrews, was already good, but I think he went to another level. And Darcy Gardner, a bloke who's been around a while. Very without, good season. Yeah, he did. So uh, they got a decent improvement more, out of guys, of guys ball, who've been
1: there. More of the ball for the important Hipwood. Yep. You know, he's key to their forward fortunes, and he moved further up the field. So he improved this year, finally getting more of the ball. A bit of a mark against Alec Witherton. I think he might have got dropped for the last game, quite rightly. Look, he's their conduit out of the back line, so he gets a lot of the ball given to him. And his great plus is his ball usage. And at times, especially towards the end of the season, he became a bit um, clever with his uh, possessions. And I think he paid the penalty and got dropped for the last game of the season. But I'll just give them, I'll give them a, a wait and see. Do we both agree that they need to lift that win loss ratio next year? Yes, to A- something cons- you know, minimum of eight wins next year.
0: Absolutely, okay. I need to be looking for ten wins. I'd reckon. Okay, let's but, ju-
1: let's leave it at that.
0: But that prognosis, given how many close ones they lost, is pretty reasonable. I think.
1: Well, they better do it.
0: All right, uh, Fremantle fourteenth, eight wins. Um... Deceptive. Uh, Classic Jekyll and Hyde. You know, seven of their eight wins came at home where they were uh, three times the team they were away, where on occasions they were disgraceful, you know, to wit that appalling effort down Geelong the other week. On the road, one win, which was against Carlton, and eight losses. Their average losing margin over the year was 50.8 points, second worst of any club. Now, that is remarkable for a side that won eight games. And the Ross trademarks really fell away. They were second last for contested ball. Um Their pressure numbers were were down. Um They didn't defend well. They were uh, 14th for points conceded, and they still can't score. So I think Ross has lost the, or that team has lost the line trademark, and there's mixed messages there coming out left, right, and center with what they're actually doing with this list. So you say you're rebuilding, but they kept turning back to the likes of, Michael Johnson during the year and then right at the end of the year they recontracted Hayden Ballantyne and Harley Bennell. So how how committed are they to their kids? And I, I, I'm not convinced at the rebuild of Frio at all.
1: Well one of the big knocks on Ross Lyon at St Kilda was player development and that was excused because it was claimed that St Kilda were always you know, striving for a premiership under Ross Lyon and that there was no time, there was no space to develop youngsters. It was, you know, all balls out trying to win a premiership. So St Kilda lost players like Tom Lynch under um, Ross Lyon and Rhys Stanley was never developed. Even players like um, David Armitage had to wait. His development stymied almost by this conservative coach. And I would have to say that there has been a lack of young player development at Fremantle. When you have a look at their best players towards the end of the year, week in, week out, it was Lockie Neal, David Mundy, Fife when he came yeah. back. Apart from Cabana, I don't see any Ross Lyon-developed players really hitting the headlines. So that very, is a huge watch.
0: Very dependent on their older players, as you say. And here's the other thing. They've debuted 15 players in the last two years, which people defending them will go, well, look at that. Well, so is Geelong. And Geelong, yeah. Geelong have managed to stay a lot more competitive than the Dockers.
1: It's, it's where those debutants ended this season that matters. Mm-hmm. And most of them have not really developed into what we would consider to be um, potential 150 gamers.
0: All right. Uh, Western Bulldogs, 13th, also with eight wins. Um, I still find it hard to believe that, you know, a side which won the flag two years ago has finished, what, 11th and now... 13th and gone from you know 11 wins to eight. They did have a shocking run with injuries, a lot to key players. Um, the plus for me is the number of young guys that they've turned up this year: um, Ed Richards, Patrick Lipinski, Billy or Gow is not so young, but he's a find. Aaron Norton, um, Brad Lynch, uh, Fergus Green, and their last month was a lot better than what preceded it. I, I think they might bounce back all right.
1: Well, this is a team that I have been very critical of Luke Beveridge for the rotation of players in that senior lineup. I mean, it became very difficult to know who was in, who was out. And it almost took a spate of injuries for him and his hand to be forced. And I'm very encouraged, very bullish about the Bulldogs going into next season because of those plays you mentioned played virtually week in, week out for the last six to eight weeks of the season. And by the end of the year, well, we saw they were winning games, should have beaten Richmond in the final game of the year. And I think there's going to be a clear out of some players that he felt, Luke Beveridge felt, never um, overcame the grand final hangover. So Dalhouse won't yeah. be there. yeah. Uh, Potentially, we'll see what the future holds for a Liberatore, even though he got injured this year. There's a slow on him and a couple of others, maybe Roughhead, etc. And I'm quite optimistic that the New Look Bulldogs will be a competitive unit next year. All
0: right. Um, Adelaide next, finished 12th. And what a a plunge from leading the ladder and playing in the grand final to 12th with 12 wins. Now, the subtext here, which can't be ignored, is injuries again. Um, no Brad Crouch for the whole year. Brady Smith only played two games. Half seasons from Sloan and McGovern, who said he wants out. Two-thirds of a year from Walker. Uh, Lynch, Douglas, Talia and Betts all missed about a quarter of the season. So there's 90-odd games between that group of players that they lost. But they did also lose their big strengths, Um they had been a side that was pretty hard at it. They lost that. But their forward potency, boy, did they lose that. They went from the highest-scoring team to the eighth-highest-scoring team, four goals less per game. Um, and they got split open defensively a bit more as well.
1: Don't undersell how much of a loss Charlie Cameron was with his forward-line pressure. Uh, Eddie Betts, I think, is slowly heading into decline. Yeah. I'm and remain sceptical about the value of Taylor Walker to that team. So combine that with injuries, I think you can... And also, not a great season for Sam Jacobs, who's very important to that Mm. side. On the upside, they discovered a couple of good youngsters, Duda, or whatever they want to call him. (laughs) Duda. Duda. He's a ready-made backman. Galucci is a bit of a strike force with the ball up forward. And, you know what? Wayne Miller at halfback. Ha, a real discovery, that a good running half back And, you know, that'll be interesting. When you've got Laird and Smith in that back line. Yeah. So they might need to recraft their positions. Rory Atkins, I think, is a better player the better the team is. Mm. Which is a bit of a knock on him. But you know what? When the ball is bounced for season 2019... Adelaide remain a force. They've got a good home ground advantage, and they've got a strong enough list to remount a challenge. All right, uh, the Bombrays,
0: Essendon eleventh uh, on twelve wins, same number of wins as last year. Didn't make the finals. Uh, superficially, people will say that's a failure. I beg to differ, and I have talked about this previously. They were two six after eight rounds. That shocking start forced them to really examine some weaknesses that I think otherwise may have been papered over a bit. Two things um, they had to address were lack of forward line pressure, the ball was ping-ponging out of there, and um, lack of a defensive enough work ethic from the midfield group. No coincidence that those midfield leaders drove the resurgence. Heppel, Merritt... In particular, were two guys that whose form hadn't been great. They really lifted, uh, lifted the whole side. They corrected those differences and were a completely different team after that. Won 10 of the last 14 games, beat four top eight teams and lost to three others by 16 points, 8 points and 4 points. Um, we saw the emergence of Kyle Langford. And later in the year, Aaron Francis, the recruits from other clubs, Devin Smith, Jake Stringer, Adam Sard, all had good years. We even saw a couple of older guys like David Myers and Tom Bell Chambers in the Ruck had easily his career best season. And they are one club I think will be very bullish about next year.
1: Yeah, look, it was a good finish to the season for Essendon when you consider that Joe Danaher Belly played this year. Let's not forget, you know, he ended 2017 as arguably the number one strike forward in the competition. I mean, he returns. Mick Brown had a great season filling in, as did McKernan. Brown can go back, which might provide some height cover in the back line. I would be bullish next year if I was a bomber supporter. The one caveat being is depth to cover the midfield because in that better run after that poor start, Merritt, Heppel, um, Devon Smith... Langford played every single game. So the question is, if they do get a couple of injuries in their midfield, whether or not they have the cover and the depth to fill those gaps. So yes to Essendon, if they can keep their best players on the field, uh, and almost a certainty for the finals next year.
0: All right, Port Adelaide, 10th, 12 wins. Hugely disappointing for me, Finey. 16 rounds into the season, they beat your Saints. They were fourth on the ladder. It was all going according to plan. And then just the bottom fell out of it. They lost six of their last seven. The only win was over the Bulldogs up at Ballarat. Um, they've given away the, their great strength for me, which was the, their ball movement. They were such an exciting, quick running side. And this year they seemed, I it was almost like there was an overcorrection in terms of trying to become more defensive, trying to temper the, the speed of the ball movement. Uh, it didn't work. They just became ponderous with the ball in hand. And I reckon that impacted on their forward setup. And that was the big drop off for them. They were the second highest scoring team last year. This year, they're only 13, three goals per game less than last year. And once they lost Charlie Dixon at the end there, that was good night, nurse. So um, they lost the, the midfield as a group didn't perform nearly as well as it should have, particularly given they bought. Uh, Motlop and Rockcliffe into that as well as Jack Watts. They lost any ability to pressure the opposition and um, they lost, as a result, a lot of those other trademarks. Really disappointing year for them.
1: Well, when you look at Essendon, who brought in three players from other clubs and got a real return from them, the three players brought in at Port Adelaide, all of whom had question marks on them at their previous clubs it must be said, Rockcliffe, Watts and Motlop, were a bust as a trio. And Unfortunately, when things started going against them and they really needed to win some games to maintain a position in the eight, it must be said that players like Wingard and Boak and Robbie Gray did not lift their rating to get them over the line in the last couple of months of the season. And there's been a suggestion from within Port Adelaide that they might even test the waters and find out what a Wingard is worth on the open market because the bottom line is... They've got star players, but their star players seem to be incapable of of working together to win key games. So they're star individuals, but are they stars as a, a team? The answer is no.
0: All right. Now, last non-finalist, finishing ninth spot with 12 wins, North Melbourne. Um, I like the Roos final. You know I like the Roos, but I, I reckon they've been outstanding. And, yeah, you can dwell on a... Yeah, a tired-looking finish to the season. But this was a side that virtually every pundit in the country had finishing in the bottom two or three. Plenty of people tipped them to win the wooden spoon. They doubled their win tally. They went from six wins to 12. Got enormous seasons out of Sean Higgins, Ben Cunnington and Ben Brown up forward, who was second in the Coleman medal. Um, I thought their effort was great. Um, and, look, they probably need a little more polish still, They probably need a little more pace still, and we talked before about Billy Hartung perhaps making way for a Pollock. He would give them both pace and polish, I think. Um, But either way, they have so far exceeded the expectations of them this year, I think you have to say that they've been a a raging success.
1: Resurrection of Goldstein was key. He's a player that uh, was All-Australian for various reasons, some off-field, had Lost his mojo, but he was right from round one. Played a great season. After years, how many? Eight years investment in Mag Door. the payoff finally came. Not only have you got a tremendous marking backman, but you've also got a great ruckman when Goldstein takes a rest. He's almost unbeatable in the ruck, is Mag Door, So a beaut combination there. Um, not so impressed by the way Ben Brown finished the season. He's just lost the ability to pack Mark and to really get those, you know, um, go-go gags at arms of his working. I'm sure he'll start next season in a good frame of mind. He kicked a lot of goals, so he'll be better, I think. And North Melbourne, huge thumbs up for a great season.
0: All right, that is our reviews with Punch. Let's bring it on home. On Footyology, never again. Okay, uh, you know I struggle with this segment finding, so I've decided that never again will I be party to a radio segment called Never Again, because You know, I struggle with negativity, and I want to be positive about my life. And the fact that I've struggled to come up with a never again is good. I think it means that there's not much I've done that I regret and that I I wouldn't do again. So never again will I be party to you, continuing to drag me down by getting me to focus on the
1: negatives in my life. It's positive for me, finey. Piss (laughs) week. It was, really. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my never again is never again will I bag, that's not true, I'm sure I will, but never again will I bag without giving consideration to this, the kicking of an AFL footballer. Because, as you know, last week I was umpiring in the Curtain Razor to the North Melbourne St Kilda game, mm. and the balls used in the game were the exact same balls as the match balls for an AFL game. And boy, oh boy, are they hard. I mean...
0: Not much give.
1: Yeah, you know, I had a kick. I actually had a kick with Jack Stephen before yep. the game. And these are hard little slippery balls. They're not like the old. Really? I'm telling you, they're not like the old T.W. Sharon. You've got to remember in the olden days, they used one ball for the game. Yeah. And I swear that, you know, as halfway through the quarter or whatever, that they, they get a bit of give in them and a bit of suppleness. Remember, now yeah. now they use like a dozen balls, and they're all brand new.
0: Yeah. And
1: boy, they're hard and slippery and shiny. Toe breakers. They really are. And I, I think Peter Dacos has spoken about it. Yeah. But they are bastards, those balls. So just remember that they're kicking rocks out there, people. Kicking rocks. When, when you mentioned Tommy Sheridan, it made
0: me think of that great commentary line from Peter McKenna. When, I can't remember who the player was, but he said... Yeah, you know, great Mark had his name written all over the Sharon, the late Tommy Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> Do
1: you remember? Remember? I don't know whether young football fans know this, but before every game of league football, oh, the choice between the Sharon
0: Two balls and the were Faulkner. brought in yeah. a
1: TW Sharon and a Ross Faulkner. Yeah. Ross Faulkner's were beautiful balls.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like Sophie's Choice, Finny. <laughs> yeah. Correct. Which
1: one? Which one did you have to neglect? Better than those disgusting burlies they used in the interstate games.
0: Yes, well, they were the WA footy, and yeah. what's the? Oh, South Australians had a penchant for Faulkners. I yeah, think. yeah,
1: they did. But that WA ball, yeah, remember? Burly, yeah. yeah, remember it had. I don't know what it was. It had this big patch of white on it. It did was it? yeah. It had this sort of right. It was like a, a maybe an eagle or something, or the or the logo of Burley. Okay. And it was a forerunner to the current sponsored balls, but it was very odd to see this big patch of white on it, and I felt it made it slippery.
0: Well, so kids today are very sport with their footies, aren't they? You get those synthetic ones that are never going to go out of shape or whatever. Whereas but, everything,
1: out... but everyone now is a T.W. Sharon. You, know? yeah, you yeah. can go to Maccas and get a... Yeah. a, a go to go to McDonald's buy a burger and get a five dollar Sharon but
0: that's it's five not, 595 finally I know that because I plug it every week on AFL nations the wash-up
1: I'm saying but it's a little it's a it's a little bit of toy it's not a <laughs> Tw Sharon well what all
0: I was going to say was everyone in our generation uh you know and this was good for your kicking you, you had to stick with the foot of your head so to go out of shape and then the bladder would start coming, coming out. out of these yeah, the, unstitched laces. The orange,
1: you know, the orange internals. Yeah, of a, yeah. It was, it was like, for a kid, it was as though you, your football,
0: yeah, was dying, and the spleen or the kidney was coming. It was out. like someone had committed Harry Curie on yeah. the
1: football, but it was still alive. How about those horrible footballs you'd buy at service stations? Oh yeah, appalling. Well, there was the brown one that would float like a balloon and had hard ends. And sting but, like a bee. But then the beautiful white rainbow-coloured ones that were more vinyl. That oh, you could, vinyl. They were nice. Good quality vinyl.
0: All right, we're, uh, we've descended we're into digressing. gibberish. So, uh, time for us to wrap it up there. Enjoy your... Um bizarre weekend before we get to the finals and uh, we're going to crank up next week. No edition of uh, Footyology TV this Sunday night because no games to talk about, so we're going to have a rare uh, freer weekend than normal and we'll speak to you again next Thursday.
1: I just remembered which, growing up Hurry up. Oh, it's okay. Which football hurt the most to kick? Which one? We used to kick around the State Bank plastic football. Oh, plastic footies. No, no, the State Bank, it was a money box. Oh, yeah, yeah. They weren't made to be kicked around. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Fill them with
0: 20-cent coins and play fair. Well, I remember the World of Sport panellists throwing the little uh, toy footies at each other on Sundays. (laughs) All right, see you next week.